Amen. If you would, please be turned in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 47. Chapter 47. <clears throat> We've been going through the book of Isaiah. And chapter 46 and 47 really tie together. 46 deals with the idols of Babylon. And then chapter 47, God hones in directly on Babylon. And we covered really the first seven verses, so we're going to pick up in verse 8. It's actually a nice point to, to pick back up. So Isaiah chapter 47, verse 8, it says, Therefore, hear now this, Thou that art given to pleasures, that dwelleth carelessly, that sayest in thine heart, I am, and none else beside me, I shall not sit as a widow, neither shall I know the loss of children. Boy, isn't that dripping with arrogance, you know, to say what Babylon saying there. And then verse 9, but these two things shall come to thee in a moment, in, a day, in one day, the loss of children and widowhood. Thou shalt come upon thee, they shall come upon thee in their perfection. For the multitude of thy sorceries, and for the great abundance of thine enchantments. For thou hast trusted in thy wickedness, thou hast said, None seeth me. Thy wisdom and thy knowledge it hath perverted thee. And thou hast said in thine heart, I am, and none else beside me. Therefore shall evil come upon thee. Thou shalt not know from whence it riseth. And mischief shall fall upon thee, thou shalt not be able to put it off. And desolation shall come upon thee suddenly, which thou shalt not know. Stand now with thine enchantments, and with the multitude of thy sorceries, wherein thou hast labored from thy youth. If so, <clears throat> if so be thou shalt <clears throat> be able to profit, if so be thou mayest prevail. Thou art wearied in the multitude of thy counsels. Let now the astrologers and the stargazers and monthly prognosticators stand up and save thee from these things that shall come upon thee. Behold, they shall be as stubble, the fire shall burn them, they shall not deliver themselves from the power of the flame. There shall not be a coal to warm at, nor a fire to sit before it. Thus shall they be <clears throat> unto thee with whom thou hast labored, even thy merchants from thy youth. They shall wander every one to his quarter. None shall save thee. And so we've been going through this, and really we got through part of it. The first thing I wanted to point out that we had covered two weeks ago is Babylon sins. And this is pretty much the short list. Um, they pursued pleasure. They kind of had this carefree living. They had sorceries, enchantments. They had wickedness. They had men's wisdom or man's wisdom. And they had pride. And the pride led them to say some things that you know, we're definitely um, an offense to God. One of those, if you look in verse 8, is the phrase, I am and none else beside me. If you remember in previous chapters, 
That's the phrase that God is using. He's comparing himself to the idols and he says, there's none of these idols that even come close to what God is, what Jehovah is. And here's Babylon kind of saying the same type of thing about itself, the city of Babylon. And so that brings us then to their sins lead to judgment. And that's in verse 11. And you see the phrase again, therefore, and here's the verse. And I've highlighted some some lines on here or underlined some things on the verse. Therefore, when I see that word, I always kind of underline it. It's like behold, therefore. Sometimes the word for or because. And the idea is, is whatever came before is then leading to what this verse is talking about. And in black, I've underlined evil, mischief, and desolation. You could substitute for evil the word disaster. And so God is saying because of their sin, which we just kind of briefly hit because two weeks ago we went in depth on that. Because of their sin, there's going to be disaster and mischief and desolation. And those are kind of the end result. And the truth is, for all of us, when our sin comes to fruition, the judgment that it brings is not a pleasant thing. It matches up with these three words that we have underlined here. But what I thought was interesting was the phrase that followed the three words. Evil is followed by what? You aren't going to see it coming. You don't know where it's going to be. You have no knowledge of what's about to happen to you. And then mischief is followed by what? Can't avoid it. It's coming. You can run, but you can't hide. It's going to happen to you. And then desolation has the same thing as evil. They're not going to know about it. Now, the importance of them not knowing about it is tied to the fact that they were involved in all of these sorceries and enchantments. And some of the reasons that they were, and if you think about Daniel when he went to Babylon, what did Nebuchadnezzar typically do when he wanted to know what was going to happen? Okay, called as magicians, and I appreciate Lynette call it, not calling them wise men because they weren't. They weren't wise men. In fact, um, the truth be told, when Daniel was taken to Babylon, in effect, he was being taken there as though it were Babylon University. They wanted to thoroughly indoctrinate this Hebrew young person in all of the enchantments and sorceries and the ideology and paganism of Babylon. And I love what God does with that. He turns it all on its head through Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, the wise men, as they're called by the Chaldeans, are shown to be no match 
for Daniel and his true God. Nancy? Probably. I don't think that would be a big stretch. I think you could connect those dots. Um, the academic elite in our day is exactly the same kind of idea that they would have there. And they were educated in all of these enchantments and sorceries. And their claim to fame, and that's why I wanted to highlight this verse, is they felt that through all of this, and through looking at the stars, and not as astronomers, but astrology, they could know the future. And God tells them here, there's gonna be judgment, disaster, mischief, desolation, and you aren't gonna have a clue where it's coming from. You're not gonna know about it. And so, knowing the future is something that seems to intrigue people. Uh, it's no different then than it is today. And we briefly covered the fact that there's you know, horoscopes and there's Ouija boards and all of these different things. And the unsuspecting doesn't have a clue that behind a lot of that is satanic and demonic influences. And so we kind of covered that. And so when you look at this passage, God is pronouncing judgment upon Babylon. In the previous chapter, he pronounced judgment upon the idols of Babylon, but this is on Babylon itself. And so Babylon's going to be destroyed. As we mentioned, the three words, evil or disaster, mischief, and de desolation are predicted. Now, I thought it was kind of interesting in verse 12, the end of verse 12 is one of the few times that I've been reading Isaiah where the sarcasm was so thick that I actually saw it through the translation. Okay, if you look at the phrase at the end of verse 12, it says, if so be thou shalt be able to profit, if so be thou mayest prevail. If you look at the first part of 12, it's talking about <clears throat> excuse me, the fact that their enchantments and their sorceries and all of those things, they've had those since really their youth, since Babylon was young. And he's basically saying the ways that you think you're going to know the future, they're not going to help. And so you can continue to trust this foolishness but it's not going to do you any good. And, and so it's, it's a very sarcastic remark. And like I said, this one even was obvious to me. He said, continue to trust this foolishness, the enchantments, the sorceries, and it might be profitable. And maybe, just maybe, you might succeed. Um, that whole phrase is really Isaiah through divine inspiration saying your efforts and what you're trusting in it's vain it's worthless maybe 
you might get a couple of things that come true, but it's not going to be able to save you. And so, Wayne? It reminds me of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Good point. Yeah, Elijah confronted the prophets of Baal, and unfortunately that was in his own nation with the Jewish people, but he kept mocking them about how come their gods couldn't start the fire on the altar and they worked themselves into a frenzy. Now the bottom line of all of this is the very last phrase in verse 15. Okay, the very last phrase basically says, none of this foolishness shall save thee. And so <clears throat> through all of this, Babylon's being destroyed. God's the one going to do it. And he's telling them, you aren't going to know where it's coming from. All your enchantments, your sorceries, and everything you can do, including your gods they covered in the chapter before, they're not going to be able to save you. And so the astrologers and the stargazers, the monthly prognosticators, they're all going to be destroyed and that's what he hi highlights in verse 14, the fact that the fire shall burn them, they shall not deliver themselves. And then the other thing that I thought was kind of interesting, it'll be every man for himself. Notice the phrase, they shall, it's in verse 15, the last part of the, the verse, it says, they shall wander everyone to his quarter. It's kind of like every person is looking for where he can find safety and refuge and it's every man for himself everyone to his own quarter um, the bottom line again is Babylon will not be saved and so in all of this God has been highlighting to the children of Israel okay you've been taken captive but it's not because their gods are more powerful. And ultimately, God's saying his judgment is going to come upon them. And so we have really a tale of two cities. We see this throughout scripture. The first city is Babylon. And not because I think it's the first, but basically that's the one we'll kind of cover. And what can you tell me about Babylon? Okay, it's not the city of God, but it's rather the city of man, and their glory is going to turn to dust and ashes one day. And so, <clears throat> as you think about Babylon, really you ought to think about man's rebellion against God. You ought to think about man's glory. Man is attempting in this to establish himself as his own deity, his own God. The other thing about it is the idols that man sets up, man has to carry them. Okay, if you remember back a couple chapters, one of the things that God keeps beating the drum about is he doesn't have to be carried. Jehovah 
takes care of himself and his people. But all the idols, they end up being put on some type of platform or something so they can be carried. They have to be carried. Man's wisdom is vanity. And Babylon is the picture of man's wisdom. All the enchantments, all the ideology. Uh, I like what Nancy said today. You could call it the academic elite. And you see the same pride that's in Babylon rearing its ugly head in our nation today. And just like Babylon, the outcome is going to be the same. Eventually, God is going to destroy man's pride and man's wisdom. And just like Babylon, those that pursue humanism, pursue all the idols of this world, they won't be saved. Those idols can't save us. And so people are pursuing those things, even their own works are not going to be able to save them. And you contrast that then with God's city, Jerusalem. First thing you notice is there's this direct contrast in Isaiah's time and the time that he's predicting a few hundred years from when he was alive. Jerusalem's going to be defeated. And in man's wisdom, man is going to say, that's because Babylon's gods are more powerful than Jehovah. And throughout all of this, Jehovah has been saying through Isaiah the prophet, it's not true. Just because it looks that way, that doesn't make it so. And so Jerusalem is defeated. But God carries them. And I am also put a phrase on here, it's linked to a box. What box do the Jews have as part of their history. Okay, I heard several. The Ark of the Covenant, okay? And so here God carries the Jewish people. God has given them laws and he's given them stories. Uh, and I don't mean stories as in fables, but rather stories as in historical events. He's given them all of this to basically teach them that he is faithful and trustworthy. And so Jerusalem stands in direct contrast to Babylon. And in the end, God has promised he's going to save his people. And so Isaiah has kind of highlighted this in these two chapters. That brings us to chapter 48. <clears throat> now, when we finish 48, I'm going to kind of go back through and just kind of give us an overview. But just as a quick reminder, chapters 40 through 48 are emphasizing God's supremacy. Every time we turn around, we see him, him being Isaiah, focusing on the attributes of God and the inadequacy of idols. And those two things keep getting contrasted back and forth. Chapter 48 is going to conclude the first section of the last 27 chapters of the book of Isaiah. 
Starting in verse 1, if you look at your Bible in chapter 48, verse 1, it starts out with the word hear. Hear ye this. And the focus of that I thought was kind of interesting. The word hear in this particular case implies also the idea of obedience. But I thought it was kind of interesting that this particular phrase, starting in chapter 48, kind of mirrors what Pastor Aaron covered in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1 of Hebrews emphasizes the idea of pay attention. This is important. Pay attention to this. That's what Isaiah is saying here in chapter 48. Let's read the first 11 verses, and we're going to see how far we can get on this. So the, the transition has changed from Babylon to now God is going to focus on Israel and talk about how he's going to refine Israel for his glory. But it doesn't start out quite that easy. So starting in verse 1, it says, Hear ye this, O house of Jacob, which are called by the name of Israel, and are come forth out of the waters of Judah, which, sweareth by, <clears throat> which swear by the name of the Lord, and make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth, nor in righteousness. For they call themselves of the holy city, and stay themselves upon the God of Israel, the Lord of hosts is his name. I have declared former things from the beginning. And they went forth out of my mouth, and I showed them. I did them suddenly, and they came to pass, because I knew that thou art obstinate, and thy neck is an iron sinew, and thy brow brass. I have even from the beginning declared it to thee, before it came to pass, I showed it thee, lest thou should say, Mine idol hath done them, and my graven image, and my molten image hath commanded them. Thou hast heard, see all of this, and I will not declare it. I have showed thee new things from this time, even hidden things, and thou didst not know them. They are created now and not from the beginning, even before the day when thou heardest them not, lest thou should say, Behold, I knew them. Yea, thou heardest not, yea, thou knewest not. Yea, from that time <clears throat> that thine ear was not opened, for I knew that thou wouldest deal very treacherously and wast called a transgressor from the womb. For my name's sake, I will defer mine anger, and for my praise will I refrain for thee, that I cut thee not off. Behold, I have refined thee, but not with silver. I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. For mine own sake, even mine own sake, will I do it. And how should my name, <clears throat> for how should my name be polluted? I will not give my glory to another. And so God has turned his attention to Israel. 
And he starts out by saying to Israel, he's basically going to refine them for his glory. But he starts out with the word here. And the word here in this particular passage, like I mentioned, implies obedience, but it also sets a tone of, I want you to listen very carefully here. He's talking to the Jewish people and he's saying, I want you to pay attention. This concerns you. And what does he tell them about themselves? Well, first of all, I thought Tom Wells might like this. Isaiah does the same thing that we saw in Hebrews. And that is, he calls them by Jacob, Israel, and Judah. The three names in this particular case, verses 2. And so the ones that he's addressing are specifically called out here. Jacob, Israel, and Judah. And what does he say to them? You are my faithful Great chosen people, right? I hear some laughing. Okay, you don't like my sarcasm there. What does he say to them? You give me lip service and worship in the temple, but your heart is not there. Okay. Nancy's quoting an earlier passage in Isaiah, also in Matthew and Mark where their heart is far from him. It's phrased a little differently here, um, but the idea is that they aren't sincere. God's assessment of them starts out in verse 1. He says, They swear by the name of the Lord, and they make mention of the God of Israel, but it's not in truth and not in righteousness. I think we would probably use the words, it's insincere and hypocritical. Okay, it's not in truth or in righteousness. And he highlights that again in verse 2. He mentions it in verse 1, but then he kind of follows up as to how they're insincere in verse 2. What does he say about them in verse 2? Okay, the first thing is, is they won't be associated with Jerusalem, the holy city, the idea of them being holy, the idea of them being dedicated to God, and they're anything but that. Um, they chase after other gods. They have that affiliation, but it's in name only. And then the second thing about it is, they claim to be affiliated with God. Notice it mentions the fact that they stay themselves upon the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. And so, in effect, they say, well, Jehovah's our God. But they sure don't act like it. They sure don't follow through with faithfulness to God. And so, Isaiah is highlighting the fact that, yeah, they can say these things, but their relationship with Jehovah is casual at best. Um, a phrase that we might use in our day is, 
if it's convenient, they'll come to worship. But if it requires commitment, good luck with that. And that's kind of the same thing that we see here. And so <clears throat> Isaiah is, is highlighting the fact that they really aren't faithful to God. God has highlighted also the fact that he demonstrated who he is. Verse 3 says, I've declared former things from the beginning. And so he's basically told them he's proclaimed future events. He's predicted what would happen. Now, I think it's important that we realize the fact that God made these, these prophecies and some of them happened fairly sudden. Some of them took years. Okay, but the point was he demonstrated who he was and he made these promises and these prophecies well before they happened so that Israel and the idols couldn't claim what God had done. They couldn't say, oh, well, we knew that. And he says this several times through there that he's doing it the way he's doing it so that they can't claim credit for it. In the New Testament, I think many of us have heard the phrase, the unpardonable sin. Anyone know what the unpardonable sin is? Obviously, it's not trusting Jesus. That's unpardonable. Yeah. Okay. The phrase that's used in the New Testament is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And if you think about what that is, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is attributing the works of the devil to the Holy Spirit. Okay. Here is blasphemy of a different sort. It's not directed specifically at the Holy Spirit, but it's attributing the works of God to idols. And so it's another blasphemous type of example that we as people can do. So God made the prophecies before they happened so Israel couldn't take his works and attribute those to idols. And so in this passage, what you see happening is Isaiah is pointing out to them that God has done things the way he did for a reason. And part of the reason is the fact that they're going to try and claim what God's doing and attributing it to either themselves or their idols. Now, <clears throat> lest we think that it's so terrible back then, we need to realize this happens today too. Okay. People try to attribute what God's doing and God's work to man's achievement or to the idols that we worship today. So God circles back in verse 4 to kind of highlight the kind of people that the Jewish people are. And I think we need to be careful because we're just like them. And so don't get too excited about what he says about them because he could say the same thing about the church today 
God knew that Israel is obstinate and stubborn. Look at verse 4. He uses the word obstinate. But he also then says, Thy neck is an iron sinew and thy brow brass. And so the idea is, is that they're stiff-necked and they're hard-headed and they're obstinate. And God could probably say that about his church today. And by the way, that's probably some of our better points. Uh, we have some that are worse than that. And so God has highlighted this in these few short verses. Isaiah has summarized really a very stinging rebuke. Um, the other part of it is, is if possible, Israel would attribute God's work titles. And that's what happens today also. One of the idols is man's achievement. And we see it all around us today. And so they're insincere, they're hypocritical, they're not truthful, they're not righteous, they're obstinate, they're stubborn, they're blasphemous, they're idol worships, idol, idol worshipers. And we don't have to look very far today to see the same sins in ourselves. Every generation has the same depraved fleshly nature, a nature that's rebellious to its root and can be summarized by this list that we've just covered. And, and it didn't take long, just five short verses, the first five verses. Because of that, I thought it would be important for you and I to take a brief tour of applying these passages to us, to our generation. And I don't do it to be cruel, I do it because we really need to take a careful look at our own selves. First thing I want us to notice is we need to do like Israel. We need to heed God's word. We need to hear it. And it needs to have the idea of paying close attention and it also needs to have the idea of obeying. Too many times we do like the book of James says, we behold ourselves in God's word like looking into a mirror and then we walk away unchanged. I think all of us, if we're honest with ourselves, could say, yeah, I can, I can relate to doing that. And so we need to pay attention to what God has been telling the Jewish people here. And we need to think about what about us? And so that brings us to one of the things that I heard years ago that I think is extremely important. It's a quote, I don't know where I heard it, but it says, when we focus on our rights, we breed rebellion. When we focus on our responsibilities, we breed revival. As we look at this passage, as we look at what God has said to the Jewish people, we need to focus on what's my responsibility. We see in our society, everyone's clamoring about their rights. And look what our culture is doing. It's self-destruction because of the fact there's rebellion 
and all sorts of wickedness when we focus on our rights. Isaiah's appeal to them has to do with their responsibilities before God. Same thing we need to focus on. We need to have a high view and opinion of God. One of the things that we have seen over and over again, and uh, the idea that I think communicates this pretty well, is if you're in a plane and for some reason they can't land, they circle, they circle the airport. And if you're like me, you like to be a window seat and you look out and you see the scenery. And a little bit later, you see the same scenery. Well, Isaiah has been doing the same thing with us. He's basically been taking us back over and over again to look at Jehovah. And one of the things they did is he highlighted the fact that God, Jehovah, is transcendent. He's above his creation. Over and over again, he has taken us and said, look at creation. God considers the galaxies to be like a shower curtain. Now, that's my paraphrasing, but effectively, that's what he said. He, he also said it's like a tent. It's like a little pup tent that a kid puts out in the backyard. That's what his creation is like to him. In chapter 40, Isaiah says, Behold, he says to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. And then he goes on to describe God in all his wondrous detail. And we have to have a high opinion of God, a high view of God. That's one of the first starting places. Secondly, God is omniscient. And omnipotent over and over again Isaiah has been highlighting this <clears throat> so in application for you and I today we need to preach teach and sing songs that promote a high view and opinion of God A.W. Tozer is one of the authors that I find the most convicting and he has some very very pointed things, but very pertinent things. He says, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And then he goes, worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. And that's from A.W. Tozer, The Knowledge of the Holy. And so just like Isaiah has been doing in chapters 40 through 48, we need to recognize that one of the starting points after we listen and pay attention is we need to have a high opinion of God. The next part is a little harder. Next part is we need to remove our idols. How easy is it to remove idols? You just take it off the shelf and throw it in the fire, right? We wish it were that easy. Okay, the idols of the heart are the harder ones. And so the first thing that I think we need to kind of think back on is as we were going through these chapters, 
We identified some of the world's idols, money, power, pride. Now, we would be foolish to think that some of those haven't crept into our hearts and lives. But one of the things that we have to ask ourselves is what about idols in our church services? Now, it's easy to look at other churches and say, oh, they have idols. They even got statues in their church services, graven images or whatever. We may have some too. We need to pray that God will be merciful and gracious to remove the idols because a lot of times we don't see them. The other thing is pray that God will give pastor the discernment and wisdom to address the idols. It's not yours and my responsibility to go around, oh, there's an idol, there's an idol, there's an idol. But it is the responsibility of those God puts in leadership in the church. And it's not easy. It's not easy to find the idols. They hide. They don't flaunt themselves as being idols. Now, lest we think, oh, we're, we're going to be free and clear. What about the idols in our lives? Now, that is our responsibility. We need to pray and ask God to show us the idols that we have individually. That is our responsibility. Let God and our pastor deal with the idols in the church because we have more than enough of our own in our own heart that we need to look at. And it's one thing to identify them. It's another to be willing to remove them. How easy do you think it is to give up an idol that's an idol of our heart? I think Wayne said it, habits are hard to break. And so the idols in our heart are hard to identify to start with, but also we don't like giving them up. We tend to grasp them with one or two hands and we clench it and hold that idol in our hand or in our heart and God has to pry each finger open to take the idol out and so we need to pray that not only will God identify him and, and we need to be willing to let him identify him in our life but we also need to be willing to let him take it out and his surgery is far better than anything we can do to remove it and so the application starts with listening and obeying God's word. It then has to do with we need to make sure that we have established our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as the one that we look up to and have such a high opinion of and high view of. And then we need to deal with the idols, which is not easy Lest we end on a negative note, I figured we also need to have a proper perspective of the future. Throughout here, if you go back and you reread verse or chapter 40 through 48, you find what I just have put on the screen over and over again. A high view of God, confrontation of idols, and then over and over again you see the idea of prophecy.
the idea of the future. Well, it gave you the reasons for God giving us prophecy. First and foremost, he's given us enough historical prophecy and predictions to demonstrate that he's trustworthy. That's the whole purpose of it, is to show that he's trustworthy, that he's more than capable of not only controlling history, but the future. Secondly, he's given us enough future prophetic predictions to prove he's still sovereign on his throne. No one has dethroned God the Father and the Son. God is still ruling sovereignly, and the proof of that is the fact that everything that he has said will come to pass. If you can't see the signs of the times, you need to reread your Bible and then look at the headlines because they are coming together scary how well they're coming together. Were it not for the fact that our trust is in God, I would be scared. And then third, God has given enough detail to prove he controls both history and the future so that others can't claim credit. And then last, we need to trust God to save us and not man's wisdom and organizations. If you look at it, there's people beating the drum of trust this or trust that. We just need to rest in the fact that God has a purpose and his purpose is gonna be fulfilled. And so <clears throat> we trust him. We know that God is faithful and trustworthy by these predictions. It's not so much that you and I can know the future. That's not the purpose of them. They're there, and yes, that's in some ways comforting, some ways we can prepare, but the truth is, is some parts of it we can't avoid, just like Babylon can't. And then last, 1 John 3, 3 says, every man that hath this hope, talking about Jesus coming again, purifieth himself even as he is pure. And so those are the three reasons for future prophetic predictions. I'm looking at the clock and I'm thinking there is no way we're going to get through the prophetic predictions. Next week, we're going to look at some of the prophetic predictions. Uh, I'll give you just kind of a brief sample. The first one is Israel. If you want to know what God's doing in this world today, just watch Israel. Ezekiel 37 talks about a valley of dry bones coming to life. In our generation, I believe we've seen the start of that. I don't think we've seen the completion of it yet, but we've seen the start. When they have spiritual life, then I think we will have seen the full fulfillment of that. What I'm gonna do next week is I'll start here and we'll just go through some of the predictions. I'm just gonna give you some highlights. I'm not even gonna be trying to cover an exhaustive list. It's just gonna be some highlights. But the purpose of it is to encourage you and I, just like Isaiah was encouraging the Jewish people, 
we need to trust God. We need to trust him when it comes to idols and removing them. We need to trust God in having a high opinion of God. And so we'll pick up there next week on the future prophetic predictions. And like I said, we'll try and go through them fairly quickly. We aren't going to go into a lot of detail, and we aren't going to be exhaustive on covering all of them. But just to give you a sampling to hopefully encourage you on your own to look at those and encourage your faith and trust in God. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. And Father, as we look at your word, it's like a mirror too many times. We look and we walk away unchanged. Help it not to be so today as we consider how great you are and how needy we are. Father, help us to be willing to let you deal with idols in our life. And we pray that you would do a work in each of us individually, but also as a church body. May we bring honor and glory to you because our Savior is worthy. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.